It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle bells. Merry Christmas. Looks like Martha Stewart threw up in here. This is delicious, honey. A little dry. Well, mine's delicious. Mine's dry. You want to trade? It's the It's Christmas. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. With those holiday greetings and How are we going to survive Christmas with 12 people stuck in a house with no heat and no electricity? Or food. There's plenty of leftovers, Howard. Beer it is. It's the weirdest thing. There's no cars, no people. How long can this keep up? You're listening to the Ghouls Gang podcast, where it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. So, what else would we celebrate with other than some twisted fairy tale horseshit? <laughs> I'm your host, Rebecca, assistant editor at Ghouls, and as we gear up for the stress and the sweetness of the festive season, we're going to be discussing Christmas horror. And joining me for some peppermint schnapps is one of our incredible writers at Ghouls. She is a folklorist, a researcher, a parapsychologist, a horror fanatic as well, of course, because why else would she be here? Welcome to the pod, Dr. Megan Kenny. Hi, Megan. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, welcome. Um, (laughs) So before we kick it off then, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself, let us know what it is you do, what's your fields of interest and research, because I know you're always up to lots of incredible things. Yeah, so I'm a lecturer, well, senior lecturer now, I suppose that's important to, <laughs> to put out there, uh, in psychology, but I'm uh, research-wise, I'm interested in people's paranormal beliefs, so I do a lot of research around people's um you know people's beliefs and folklore and mythology um and research around like people's horror fanaticism like mine and uh, why do people love horror what do they get out of it um so that's my favorite thing to do and obviously writing as much as I can for like the lovely ghouls mag and um and yeah it's just getting all my grubby fingers into all the horror pies that's what I'm trying to do <laughs> fingers and all the pies we like that here we like that um okay then so just before we start discussing today's film which I know we're both super duper excited about um I just wanted to ask quickly about as it's sort of coming up to Christmas um a few days ago I got all my sort of Christmas videos and DVDs out that I like to watch and I thought oh I'd love to ask Megan what is your sort of do you have a view and routine over Christmas are there any particular films like both horror non-horror that you like to watch Oh yes, yes. There's a very, a very strict tier system in this, this at this Christmas house. Glad to hear. So, uh, we have <laughs> we have the tier one, which is the Christmas Eve, and that is always Muppets, Muppet Christmas Carol. And then I'm forced to watch Die Hard as the the counterpoint to the Muppets. Okay. Um, and then you know, in your tier two, you've got your Elf, your Scrooged, you know, oh. your Grinch. And then tier three, we're going more like, you know, National Lampoon, Gremlins, <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas, because I think Nightmare Before Christmas could be Christmas, could be Halloween, you know. Um, but yeah, so there's a very strict uh, tier system in place. But I do always like to watch some cheesy 80s uh, horror slashers from Christmas, your Silent Night, Deadly Nights, um, any 80s Christmas slasher, really. And I, I did see Violent Night recently. Um, oh okay and, and I did love it um, <laughs> although I did I did question the anti-capitalist message of you know Santa saving the capitalists but um, I did <laughs> like it seeing you know Father Christmas beating a man with a sock full of pool balls is is always good at Christmas I think that's not what you expect is it and so <laughs> you know <laughs> you know using a candy cane as a shiv that's the sort of thing <laughs> I'm after at Christmas I like the inventive Christmas kills that's what I love I'm feeling like I'm getting a true sense of your sort of vibes here. Um, yeah, you've mentioned lots of there. I, I recently, last week, went to, to a screen in a Gremlins. Um, there was like an 80s disco and then a screen in a Gremlins afterwards. And Amazing. Yeah, I met up with a lot of people who had their, I took my gizmo and a lot of other people had theirs and we just went wild and yeah, 
you know, I, I, I thought that I was like, you know, 12 again. And yeah, it was great. Oh, amazing. I was thinking about it, actually. I haven't got watched Gremlins for years. And I was thinking about how dark a film it actually is. Like, I, w- I remember as a kid seeing that when she was talking about, you know, a dad trying to come down chimney. And then he just like broke his neck and yeah. died. And I just remember thinking as a kid, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a line I remember thinking that as well last week. And then there's also a line where she says, when when other people are opening their presents, other people are opening up their wrists. And I was like, oh my God, that's so such a dark. Yeah. Line. Uh, and it's so casual as well. It's just like, hey, it's the 80s. So <laughs> yeah, anything goes. It's a kid's film, it's fine. Yeah, yeah and, you know, like, and, and I think it's just, yeah, it's such a, I love that though, like that sort of, that's what I love about Christmas horror is that like dark, the underbelly, you know, the sort of dark underbelly to the, to the holly jolly season. Yeah, exactly. It's like other films that I like to watch, I love Black Christmas. Um, I, I love watching The Wizard of Oz as well, which has got that, like you say, that sort of, you know, glossy, veneer but the darkness underneath the surface and then for some reason and I don't know what our connection is for Christmas but we always watch Hands of the Baskervilles mm. <laughs> and uh we've got a version of Sweeney Todd as well with Ray Winston oh. and we it's like oh a tv drama yeah <laughs> I saw it I saw it when it came out I remember it yeah <laughs> you know a few Christmas specials uh, you know a Christmassy Ted yeah. or like a bit of Father Ted at Christmas oh yeah I mean I always <laughs> love the Inside Number Nine Christmas uh, episodes as well I always think they're brilliant but yeah it's um on Christmas Eve though it's got to be Muppets and I cry every time <laughs> oh it gets you doesn't it it gets you for different reasons like over the years yeah 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 but that's I think that's the thing about having ones that you watch every year is like your response changes over time doesn't it like you are you respect like respond to it like watching gremlins as an adult you think oh my god whereas when you're a kid you're watching it like oh they're creepy like I like them but you don't necessarily get that um all that other sort of social horror as well yeah yeah so I'm getting too excited now I'm like my head's popping with what am I gonna watch tonight um (laughs) Okay then, right. So let's get on to today's discussion. So Megan, do you want to tell us what film you have picked? I do. I have picked my favourite Christmas horror, uh, The Krampus. Oh, just Krampus. Krampus. You know, we can call it The Krampus. The Krampus. Elevated The Krampus. The Krampus. <laughs> Starring the always incredible Tony Collette, obviously. Um, and yes, that is my festive, uh, that is always on my, that's a tier one. Oh, it's a tier one. It's a tier one. It's a tier one. Yes. So I watched it early this year for our podcast. Um, Same, which was a treat. Yeah. It was a treat to <laughs> yeah. watch it like ahead of time. And I'll, I, to be honest, I'll probably end up watching it again because yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so do you want to give us a little synopsis then of the film for anyone yeah. who hasn't seen it? Yes, if you've not seen it, run, don't walk. Pause this podcast. Go straight away and watch it. Um, when it 2000, I feel like it was 2015. I feel like when I looked it up, something like that, 2015. Um, yes. But essentially, it's about all the horrors of the family Christmas. Um, and, um, you know, a family that comes together, even though they don't really like each other, to celebrate the holidays um, with Tony Collette, aforementioned, as the very, very highly strung matriarch of the family um and her sister and really loud boorish husband and horrible children come to stay um and and how their um youngest son i want i don't know i can't remember anybody's names michael is michael max max Max. oh yeah because they call him maxipad which is you know (laughs) so tedious you horrible horrible girls we'll it's get un- unimaginative 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 at best so <laughs> max who still has the wonderful spirit of christmas in his heart and looks forward to it every year has it kicked out of him by these horrible relatives and you know rather than sending a letter to santa he tears it up and in a fit of rage loses his christmas faith um and as punishment for that is visited by the krampus <laughs> and his band of absolutely horrible minions <laughs> each progressively worse than the last and so um 
on Christmas, uh, Christmas morn, uh, yes, the family are just absolutely um, tormented, terrorised and annihilated by Krampus. It's very festive. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. What absolutely beautiful synopsis. Covered everything there. And I think um, I'm, from what you've said already, I'm starting to feel like I understand why Megan loves this film so much. <laughs> and so do I. So it's good. Um, so why did you pick this film then? And what is your relationship with it? I think I picked it because I remember I went to see it at the cinema. Like I remember going to see it and just thinking what an amazing, fun film. You know, like, it's really fun. It's like, it's it's much bigger budget than a lot of Christmas horror. And I think when you watch that and then you watch other ones, like I've I've reviewed a couple this year, like one called Nutcracker Massacre, which is coming out soon. And, good, uh, good title. Yes. And Christmas Bloody Christmas, which is a shudder one that's I think it's just been released. And I think you can tell the difference in the budget of, you know, these films. So for me, I thought it was quite surprising to see such an obvious budget and to see somebody like Tony Collette being in this film, you know, it's obviously, and and I think, but it's got that real, um, like, even though it's it's not, it's not the sort of glossy big budget that loses the, I think the flavor and the horror of mm-hmm. it but it just means that it is quite an opulent spectacle. So, you know, like, it's it's the the Krampus and his sort of minions are very um, well done, and, like, there's a lot of practical effects, which I love. Like, Same. I live, yeah. live for practical <laughs> effects, and I, and I really love that about it. And I just think it's such a, a dark... Um, Christmas film but so relatable because we all have that like things we do at Christmas that we don't want to do people we don't <laughs> want to see and and also like for me I love as a folklorist and, and everything I love Krampus the idea of Krampus and so I think to see a film that I think does him justice is is why I picked it and why it's one of my favorites justice for Krampus you hear that here <laughs> first <laughs> yeah so for me then it's become a real Christmas staple over time it's like you know Tony Collette for one like I mean sorry but we will just gush over Tony Collette throughout this podcast (laughs) as we did when we were exchanging messages and we like Tony Collette robbed robbed for hereditary we will never get over it I'll never never stop being bitter it's like (laughs) um but yeah I echo exactly what you said Megan it's like it's got that beautiful mixture hasn't it of making you feel like it's warm and fuzzy you know but then turn into those like horror twists and using those in a heightened way to create these like supernatural elements and things I think that I recognize that should be festive and warm and fuzzy take on like a threatening quality you know like little gingerbread men snowmen presents like even presents become menacing in this film and it's like I don't know how they do that um but then you've got alongside the sort of supernatural stuff you've got what's perhaps the more, I don't know, like more relatable horror of like the domestic realm and the family tension and the conflict, which for me, that's perhaps where the true horror of the film lies. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think when I think about it, like I love our even of opening credits, there's all snow and, you know, snow's coming down and you can see it's, it feels like what a lovely festive film. And then <laughs> there's that like Christmas music overlaid, this absolute capitalist nightmare like everyone storming you know black friday or whatever it is sale and everyone's like kicking each other to death over a tv and (laughs) and that like you said that veneer of of christmas and what i think like christmas has become you know like um this like avarice and greed and the chaos of got to get these things got to have things to present to one another at christmas and and it sets that up from start in in a way that I think is really relatable, um, you know. And and yeah, I just I think then as you see like family and they all come together, you know, it's it's such a relatable film in that way because we've all we've all had to go Christmas shopping in sales and wanted to beat someone to death in front of <laughs> us. You know? We all stand in supermarket like two days before Christmas wanting to punch someone in the back of head. It's, <laughs> it's a very violent time. Christmas is very violent. <laughs> it, it brings out the worst in us, shall we say. Yeah. 
Well, let's yeah. talk about let's talk about the opening then, since you've started to sort of segue into it. So we've got like that juxtaposition, haven't we, of like the old music, mm-hmm. which sort of evokes that like traditionalism in the sense of like we've been saying the warm and fuzzies pitted against that chaos of like consumerism which just seems to cut against all those like family values and love and giving it's like you know for me like watching this scene was really stressful and anxiety inducing because I'm almost watching thinking why do we put ourselves through this it's it's like it seems to bring out such a horrible side of humanity and obviously it's heightened here but like you've said, Megan, there's things that we recognise, you know, there's parents forcing kids to smile, there's check- checkout stuff that look like they want to drop, you know, and there's this real sense of frayedness and it's negative energy, you know, and then of course we've got children beating each other up. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, I think you just love Max from that though, don't you? Like, yeah. Yeah, you just like you know, and he's taking his lumps, like he's not winning, but he's still, he's got the fight in him, you know, and I think as a, as a character all the way through, I, I think that um, that's what makes him such a good protagonist, that's because like, I would argue he probably is protagonist, or at least he's, you know, it's, it's his story, isn't it, but yeah. I think that's what makes him so, such a good character, because he's, he's, in middle of all this, like, you know, his parents, the tension, his family come in and we don't like, you know, and he's, but he's in middle of it all, but he's still just kicking and screaming and all the way through, that's what he does, you know, he's got this real spirit about him. Um, and and I think, yeah, that that sort of overlay between, like you said, the, the lovely festive music and then this chaos and and this just, the, the greed of the season. You know that I think you could, you know, you could argue it's it's very um, anti-capitalist in that respect. It's very yeah. much like you know when you get home and you see that Oni's baking, you know, little Nan's baking, and and she's like, oh, she bought cookies. Why are you making them? And she like rolls her eyes. You know, they've forgotten like the spirit of Christmas, and so the spirit of Christmas <laughs> will return to punish them. <laughs> Yeah, so we so we sort of in that climax of the opening, we meet husbands and wife Sarah and Tom, and then children Max, who we've mentioned, and then teenager Beth. Um, so we've already sort of spoken about how it sets the tone, the messaging around it, um, and you've just started to sort of tease into points about the sort of the true message of Christmas and the values and I, I wanted to talk about that notion of traditionalism versus the new and like I think Omi is like the sort of she's the the sort of pivot that everything sort of rotates on around this you know as you've said I've, I've got here as well you know she's associated with like fire warmth cookies you know Max as well he seems quite drawn to the traditional he wants to watch his Charlie Brown and wrap his presents um and I'm like yeah, that sounds like a good Christmas Eve, or, you know, it's a few days before Christmas Eve. That sounds like a good, you know, evening in, like wrapping some presents and watching Charlie Brown, right? Perfect. You know, <laughs> like a perfect one. And, and yeah, and I think she is like that, that like grandmotherly, again, like what we can relate to, most people can relate to that idea about, you know, your nan at Christmas. And, and like, I think even the idea that she lives there that this sort of blended family which obviously would bring its own tension but obviously then for like max that's a real blessing because he he's really close to her and, and they've got this really lovely and a really lovely relationship you know and, and she is that warmth and that remembering of the old way like the traditional versus this very consumerist everything's got to look right so i mean it's a bit before the sort of social media boom but you know we all see now about you know these perfectly curated christmas trees and color schemes and you know everything's like what it looks the veneer of christmas whereas she is very much the spirit of it i think yeah and and you know she as you say she upholds those traditions it's about taking time with things um and max's father tom comes in and i think he switches off or switches over from a christmas carol to the news and it's like 
again that's like replacing something traditional for something like really modern and like just speaking to that sort of like fast-paced kind of like yeah no time yeah and then when she says I thought you weren't working he's like no I'm not traveling like it don't mean I'm not working like he's always on his part you know he's this job that that's what defines him and that even at this time of year that's meant to be about family and love and giving and, and time together he's not present and so then Sarah is ever present like obsessively present about again appearances about it's got to be perfect you know and then I love that bit where she puts picture on wall and, yeah. she, <laughs> and she's like but there's one for every year this is what we yeah. do this is our new tradition we go and spend loads of money on a photo we have creepy perv mall Santa to show <laughs> that we're an happy family but actually when we're in his house together we don't watch Charlie Brown and make cookies and wrap presents we're all in separate rooms working yes you know, whatever and it's again it's that very I think it's really good at that setup of the veneer of this is what we do, we're a family versus the reality of it, which, you know, I mean, I'm probably getting a bit in front, but I think like when we find out about Max's letter, that's very much what that's about. Like, I don't want this picture perfect Christmas. I want our Christmas, our real Christmas. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And Sarah's a really interesting one for me because as a someone who struggles with perfectionism myself, I could really, I can really like associate with her <laughs> obsessiveness. But it is like you say, it's very directed towards uh, appearances. And even with the photographs, I get the sense that she feels like this is what she should be doing. This is for other people to see that they're the yeah. perfect family. Um, yeah. And obviously, the reality of that is that, like you say, everyone's off doing the separate activities in the separate rooms. So it's just everything that's on the surface. But I do empathise with her, a real wish to want to make it perfect. Mm. But it's almost like in trying to create that perfection, it, it just puts everybody on edge, including herself. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And I think, like, I love um, when, you know, family turn up and her aunt turns up and she's, her aunt is like, God, it looks like Martha Stewart threw up in here. Yeah. <laughs> it's this very opulent dining room, but, you know, it's plates that are never going to be used. It's you know, things, decorative, you know, in bathroom, she's got towels you're not allowed to touch. Yeah. Like, it's this this very, you know, but I suppose when you look at their family dynamic, it's very much her channeling that energy about a marriage that has, you know, gone stale in a way, or has gone, you know, that there's this distance and kids that are growing up and growing away from her and like, oh, is she now? I think that it's it's there. I don't think it's maybe teased out as much as obviously we'd want it to be because it would mean more Tony Collette. But <laughs> this idea that it's, it seems like it's a very pivotal point in their family dynamic as well. You know, a daughter's got this boyfriend, Max is growing up, like a husband, their relationship, and who will she be when it changes, you know? That's really interesting. As you're talking there, I'm just thinking about all those changes that are happening in her life and wondering if this is like the last vestige of control that she can exercise. She can control these things. And maybe that's why she gravitates towards this because yeah. it's, it's, she's clinging on to all she's got left because. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I agree. Yeah. She can control what the tree looks like and she can control the Christmas portrait, but she can't control that her daughter's going into a, you know, boyfriend's house smoking weed and a, you know, her husband travels all the time and <laughs> she's got a family coming for Christmas, you know, it's, yeah, it do, she does feel very, um, very tight. And I think that's what, I mean, Tony Collette is so good at that because it's really similar mm. in Hereditary as well. But I think how you see her, Robert Corsett film, like when that control is gone, as she unravels, but then finds herself in that chaos because she's not so restricted. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's, it's just fascinating. And as someone who's quite a control freak as well, I can uh, I can totally <laughs> relate to that as well. <laughs> so, uh, so then we get the arrival of um, Linda, who is uh, Sarah's sister, and Howard, who's Linda's husband. And then we get uh, this one, Howie Junior, um, the wonderful Aunt Dorothy. Oh my goodness, I love her. Love her. She reminds me of the um the, the, the sorority house mistress in Black Christmas. 
I can't remember yeah. her name, but she, I'm definitely getting those sort of vibes off of her. And then um, their twin daughter, Stevie and Jordan. So then, what are your first impressions of uh, this new dynamic to the family? I, I think Linda's lovely. And I, I really like Linda all the way through. And I think she just seems like, you know, she just wants everyone to have a nice time. She just wants, you know, everyone to be together. Um, but there's that obvious tension between her and Sarah in terms of Sarah's life and presentation and this big house and this, you know, big dining room and fancy, you know, a Christmas feast that she's laid on and, and everything else. And then there's like Linda who's much more um, relaxed and, and just let things go easy breezy sort of thing. But you can tell there's that tension between um how they both live and the differences in that that's only fueled really by Howard who although I think he's redeemed by the end he's an absolute nightmare at the beginning <laughs> Just like, I want not have him in my house you know? and, um, and but you can tell that there's this you know this tension that they're all feeling that they feel every year and you can imagine I think for all of them as it's getting closer and closer the sense of dread that they're yeah. all going to stuck together and you do think well why do it <laughs> you know it's family it's what we all do at Christmas um and I mean them twins are just awful and you just you want something to happen to them I did when they were being horrible to Max I'm like you know I mean I'm not saying I wanted what happened to them to happen but I do think they are just so mean like mean-spirited nasty like you know nasty kids and you just everyone's known a kid like that as well so you just think oh I hope you'll get yours <laughs> <laughs> full of the Christmas spirit Megan um, <laughs> yeah I think that tension between two families one of the things one of the sort of motifs or like things I love to analyze in horror is those sort of dinner scenes I just think they're just oh they're so juicy and they're so relatable and you know they go up, they go down, it's tense, and then it's eased a bit, and then suspense, and I just, I just adore it, but um, I think it's done really beautifully here, and do you know, there's actually things for me that, when I watched it again, I was like, there's things I like and dislike about how both of those families behave with each other. I really feel like there's an element of snobbery directed towards Linda and Howard's side of the family that I don't like, you know, but then there's also this masculine shame that's put onto Tom, you know, there's rudeness and then there's all that sort of gun talk that makes me feel really uncomfortable, um, you know, and this idea of a weak scout is like the sort of label that Howard gives to Tom. Um, I wondered if you had any thoughts about, you know, the idea of class and whether, you know, do you see here that we see Linda and Howard are presented as more working class and then potentially Sarah you know has she historically been working class and now she's aspirational and you know she's worked out up to to middle class and does any do you see any conflict and tension within like the class situation there well much like you I love to see like dinner scenes <laughs> but one of my like well, it's not, I can't even say it's a favourite thing. It's just something I don't know how not to do. It's not, I don't know how not to talk about class when I talk about anything. So yeah, <laughs> even when I'm talking about horror, I'm talking about class. And I think, yeah, there's a very, it's an interesting tension because there's, there's this snobbery directed at, at them. Like when she says, you know, I don't think, I understand when she snaps at her aunt because she's been, they've been very critical and she's put this, you know, amazing spread on and, you know, and she, but then she's like, oh, well, we're going to have mac and cheese and hot dogs. Like, and then says to her aunt, you know, oh, well, let's go and have Christmas dinner in your trailer. Like she's very, she, she's obviously feeling cornered and feeling tense, but her response to that is to, is to be very shaming yeah. towards her family who obviously aren't doing as well as she is, but you do, I suppose, or I would say I would take it that she did come from a similar back, obviously a similar background. And so it's like a lot of that tension and control, I think could maybe you could argue it comes from like an imposter syndrome. Like I don't deserve all this. And I'm pretending that I'm, you know, I mean, it's the myth of the middle class anyway, you know, middle classes don't even, anyway, I'll not go too far down that road, but the myth of the middle classes. But, um, but then I think on other hand, there's that sort of, in a way, reverse snobbery from 
empowered particularly around oh you think you're better than us and you think you know you've got this like food that nobody wants to eat this prissy prim you know like food that nobody wants and and then to to target time on his masculinity as though well, you're not a real man because I'm a real man I'm what a man is you know and I think on both sides that's what's so interesting in this film it does it so well is they're all playing with their own conflict and their own negative feelings about the self and each other and it's just this powder keg attention mm. um but yeah I definitely think there's a class element throughout it really yeah I think yeah powder keg's a really good way to describe it um and it puts you it just puts you in that interesting position of where do I put my feelings who do I empathize with and I like that it, it doesn't sort of go clearly one way or the other it's yeah um and as much as there's this tension, there are also like touching moments as well. Like there's a lovely moment that I spotted between Sarah and Linda when they're talking about um, their mother's angel and the decorations that Sarah's kept, you know, which is, I guess, a hark back to something traditional that they're doing, which is good. Um, and I like that that moment's not like, it's not overly sentimental, like in a really mainstream Christmas movie that could go really over the top but yeah. it feels quite believable. It's just a brief moment, you know? And I think, as we all sort of see, it's when everything starts to be taken away from people that people begin to soften, isn't it? And they start to realise what's really important. Yeah, and, and I think at the start, there's this real idea about, like, you know, family is is what you make, not what you just put up with. But that for, there's this old fast politeness thing around, you know, Tom putting up with his wife being insulted because in in his in their home, by, but it's her family. So don't I intervene and said, don't speak to my wife like that, you know, or and then Sarah taking it because a family have come for Christmas and she's trying to make this Christmas, and everybody's sort of taking this the this like tension from each other. And really what you could say is, well, your family is all you make it. You don't need to spend time with these people. But then I think as film progresses, that the bonds that they've got that I think have been covered over for a long time by this tension and this shame and this resentment become uncovered as they actually have to be together and they have to work together. And I think that's a really nice arc in it as well, as you see how they go from really not wanting to spend any time together to actually remembering that, you know, the family and, and that there are redeeming qualities to everybody. It, well, in the film, I'm not saying in life. But... <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about, we've sort of danced around it a little bit, but the spirit of Christmas then. Uh... <laughs> so so what I love about Max is like, we've, we, you spoke about a bit at the top, Megan, didn't you, about how he's such a good protagonist and I completely agree. I think He's almost like an underdog in a sense, and he's almost like a bridge between the old and the new because he's so sort of drawn towards Army's traditional ways and he's part of his family unit. So I see him as a bit of a bridge. But um, what I love is his sincerity of his wishes. It's like these elements of like love and spending time, you know, they're the things that, you know, the common values that we perceiving Christmas you know of accepting one another but recognizing our differences um so what are your thoughts about like Max's experience at the dinner table and then you know why that why that then results in him ripping up his letter I think it's for everybody involved and that's why it's such a good scene is because it's about being seen and being vulnerable so Max feels vulnerable and seen because his letter his private letter his private wishes are being shared and mocked by you know his cousins who are always picking on him but I think you know when he when he said oh I wish things could be easier for Aunt Linda and Uncle Howard and they're like look at each other and there's a shame there that like mm. even the kid knows that we're struggling and you know when he says I wish that um me and mum and dad would, would love each other again and there's a shame there that they obviously think they're doing a really good job at pretending and this pretense that everything's fine but he knows it's not and so I think that how it's all that tension it's like ratcheting up ratcheting it up and then that's the explosion of it that's how the power you know the powder keg explosion is that he has seen you all for what you are or you know what your circumstances are 
and that's uncomfortable. But he's being seen as a child who still believes in Santa and Santa's not real and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's it's that really, that the shame of being seen and being vulnerable. Um, and, and he is very angry all the way through. And I, I think justifiably, you know, angry. And I think it's nice to see an angry child character you know, mm-hmm. that's not just a, a that's not passive. He's, he's very, um, very active. You know, he's a very, um, very active character. But I think then that I suppose it's that disappointment, the impetuousness, of a child of disappointment as well, to just rip everything up and like throw it away. And I'm, I'm not a child. It's like he's on this precipice of being a child and not anymore. Mm. And that there's always that I think in Christmas films, isn't there, about the the sort of before and after when you find out that he's that you know well is he real? I mean, I'm not I'm not here to say if Father Christmas is real. But you know he's uh, he's on this like cusp and and he crosses it. He's forced to cross it, and then he's you know angry and he's embarrassed and he feels shame and he feels like if no one else is going to bother, why should I? Like he gives up, and I think that's that's the the sort of message really of it. I suppose is like when you lose hope, like evil can creep in. Although I wouldn't, I mean, we'll get to it a bit later. But I would be ne- not necessarily think Krampus is evil. But anyway, we'll get there <laughs> as we move on. But I, I think it's this idea that when hope is lost, darkness can creep in, and and you know it it's set up I think as though he he has let that darkness in which is what I think I mean we'll get to it when we talk about ending I'm really excited but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think it's it's a very uh it's very harsh in that respect because it's like Max has brought this on them um but he don't know what he's bringing you know he's, he don't know what he's bringing on him he's just you know so it's it's a really interesting turning point I think yeah and I guess they've as much as he's brought it on them they've pushed him in to that position as well so there's a nice sort of back and forth there I I I love the points that you're making here it's it you know it makes me think about it being this like innocence to experience type of tale and like I love the idea you were saying about being seen and about how Max has has got you know the ability to really see others and I feel like that's a nice a nice juxtaposition of being naive enough to like still believe in Santa Claus but then being perceptive enough to really look at the a lot of the adult situations around him and just see them for what they really are yeah yeah absolutely yeah and it but it's that thing about you know the innocence of childhood and everyone thinks that means that kids don't see but we know that you know kids do see what's going on they do know when the parents are fighting they do know when there's tension and um so he's it's and it's a time of year when people have lived through that in their own childhood, but now are like probably living through it as adults thinking, oh, my kids don't know that, <laughs> you know, we're arguing like cat and dog, but they do. And I think it confronts it for, for you as a child, but as an adult as well. I think that's why it works so well. Yeah, no, that's a really good shout. And so Max throws his letter into the air and then we get this sense that something malevolent has been unleashed. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't get to see much. It's just this real sense. And, you know, we then get the incident of the electricity going down in the house, you know, and then I think it's quite nice that we've got the idea of electricity versus fire, you know, old and new again, you know, and this really forces everyone to spend time together alone without you know all these conveniences and everything else the trappings and and then and then we hear from Omi um Max's grandmother um and and we just hear a snippet about the fact that she always gets a bit weird around Christmas time um so what do you think about how this turn of events with the electricity changes the, the dynamics in the group I, I mean, I love it. I really love that. I mean, I love it all, but I, I love that bit because they're all like running around, you know, Sarah's lighting a $60 Joe Malone candles. And, <laughs> you know, Howard doesn't know how to make a fire, but he's this big hunter-gatherer. And then you turn around and there's this, you know, a tiny little woman and she's and she's made this massive roaring fire. She's made out chocolate. She's 
she's there. But what I love about her is she's doing all this and all kids are like, oh, it's exciting. Let's have a hot chocolate. But you see that her hands are trembling and it's because she knows what lurks in that blizzard. Like she knows she's lived through this. She knows that that malevolence is is around like you know and, and but she you see it as an audience member like you you know you're watching it but she hides it so well but you can see it in a and when she's you know keep fire out keep it up we need to keep it and and again like that dismissive people are very dismissive of max because he's young but they're very dismissive of her because she's old and i think that mm. just positions interesting about how we become at starter as life and then at ender as life, there's an infantile, you know, you're infantilized. There's a very, and so that between Max and Omi, I think is interesting because they're both sort of dismissed by everybody around them. Um, but she's the only one that really knows what what's coming, you know, and obviously don't want to believe that that's what's coming, but she knows it is. Um, and yeah, I, I think that is is a really a really good turning point film yeah I love that observation that you've made there about them being at these opposite ends of the age spectrum and them being dismissed that's really interesting um so Beth goes out into the storm to try and connect with her boyfriends I think who I mean when you're a teenager you haven't heard from your boyfriend for like three hours it's like three years isn't it so (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah And so you just get this sense of things starting to fragment and, you know, there's just this sense of, like, unease. Mm. Um, and we hear then, like, Omi's story about uh, what happened in her village. Um, so we hear about everyone in her village sort of turning on each other and focusing on the idea of taking rather than giving, which becomes a bit of a theme in the film. And she... she confesses that she wished that her parents were gone which I think is a it's a pretty big thing to I mean maybe, yeah maybe as a kid we all sort of secretly for a moment you know um and then this is when a house is visited by Krampus sorry the Krampus the Krampus, the Krampus. The one and only. <laughs> yeah um so first off I I wanted to ask you do you think Ami represents hopelessness or hope in this film I I mean I think that is such an interesting point I think she represents both I think she represents the journey from hope to hopelessness in that beautiful sequence oh it's gorgeous stop animation it's so beautiful and again something that you don't see in in you know that attention to detail that sort of like you know the craft of it I mean I love that sequence it's so beautifully done and and it just makes it so much sadder as well I think to see it presented in that way yeah Um, that like it's presented like a kid's film but it's so dark and and you know and horrible Um, and I think she she is hopelessness then and, and I don't think, I think it's about the, the sort of loss, that we, like we talked about already, like the loss of innocence to experience, like, you know, that she she realises, I suppose, that she'd lost that hope, again, through no fault of her own, through really horrible circumstances. But it's, I don't know, I think there's something really interesting in this film about, like, the responsibility of, of like, your intention like there's mm-hmm. something about it which which feels harsh like for a child to go I wish my parents were gone I mean it's not it's not a wish that's rooted in experience it's rooted in the innocence of this will never happen parents yeah. are, are infinite aren't they when you're a kid um and so I think by the time we see her and she's a grandmother and I think she's got some of that hope back but obviously that the the fear of it has always remained because the first thing she thinks of when blizzard starts and lights go out is Krampus has returned you know so she's it's it's quite an interesting I suppose point about trauma as well and mm-hmm. how what we experienced in childhood never leaves us we just learn to live alongside it um but yeah like I think that is is a really interesting point for a character gosh I just so much that you're saying there that's making me think I love you you're talking about the the scene being like it seeming very like 
childlike and so I'm thinking is that because it's her memory as a child so maybe that's the decision there and then I love what you said there just about it being like a potential you know metaphor for trauma um I never thought about it in that way but we obviously we all carry things from our childhood through to adulthood and I think as much as the film is definitely about intention, I think it's also a bit about balance as well. Like when you said before about you didn't see Krampus as wholly bad, mm-hmm. a little light inside me went, ooh. It's like, because I think about balance a lot in this film as well, because, you know, life is full of the good and the bad. And I think, you know, that resides in all of us and mm-hmm. it is a part of life. And I think it's definitely something that I see in this film about the idea of balance and and having yeah. both both the the light and the dark. Um. So then, you're the folklorist, which uh, I'm so pleased to have you here for this. So I'm interested to hear what do you know about Krampus, and also like what do you think of the presentation of Krampus here, and how the folklore is used in this film. I think, well, I was just going to say actually about like Krampus when you said about light and dark, because I think it's seen quite often that, you know, um, sort of St. Nicholas and Krampus are the light and the dark of Christmas, you know, the, the Christmas spirits, one's positive and one's maybe seen as negative. But I think when you look at Krampus and how he's, he's presented, it's very much a moral uh, is a very moral character so it punishes you if you're naughty it's about transgression you know like the idea that if you're good you're rewarded but if you're naughty Krampus comes and you know like the the tradition of um so I mean it terrorizing children to be fair you know really like so traditionally um if you've been naughty Krampus visits you before Christmas and he puts a bunch of birch twigs in your shoes so oh. <laughs> So children, you know, used to wake up and probably still do um, wake up in parts of like, you know, Germany and Eastern Europe and all these places. And um, and to, if you got this bundle of birch twigs, it meant Krampus were coming to get you, which is like... So as, a child, like as a child, I would buy into um, that like 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And then the idea that he comes to get you and um, he puts you in a sack and he beats you with birch twigs um, oh and he carries you off in chains so that's like the sort of and you I mean I've got um Krampus baubles on my tree I've got one a really gross lurid one like he's nearly always presented as like this like goatee looking guy with a big red tongue like he's got this really long tongue um and there's loads of amazing like um postcards and things you know throughout history showing him and nearly always that he's got some screaming kid head poking out of a sack you know (laughs) (laughs) so I think like visually he's very interesting yeah Um, and like the the image itself is almost like caution yeah and so used you know as a cautionary tale like if you're bad Krampus will get you if you're good Father Christmas will reward you you'll get presents but if you're naughty Krampus is going to come and take you away um and I think that's a really interesting perspective at Christmas as well to be, you know, terrorizing your children with it. <laughs> but yeah, and I and I mean this idea that um, you know, he, he walks on like goat's legs and like, well, historically walks on goat's legs, Satan generally. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we can we can tie it into I don't think it's necessarily um purely like a christian thing it's a folk belief but you know there's that idea he's he's not really they present him as much more of a man i think in the film much more of a a sort of human entity although he's got that horrible long tongue still and his fingers long spindly fingers and you know his goat's legs but his face is very um human in its way Mm -hmm. but very old as well so i think they've sort of combined him a little bit with father christmas this idea that like these two you know old old blokes are going to come and either reward you or punish you <laughs> very Friday in that way I yeah but I think it's um not that I like to you know give any way to Freud but anyway that's a different story um but yeah I, I think he's presented really interestingly in in this you know and he's got like the cloak and and I, I love how when you first see him it's all silent and then you just hear like the jingle bells yeah and <laughs> You know, she looks, Beth looks, and, and you just get the scale of him, and he's enormous, absolutely enormous, but so agile, and he's jumping, you know, from roof to roof, and 
and and he's he, it's like he's um he's got this because he's not human there's that real um unstoppable element to him like that you see straight away in his size and how he moves through this environment like he's very um yeah very sort of un unstoppable i think um but yeah i mean from a photo perspective i think they, they did it quite well and i think they kept the best bits of him um and maybe that's why he comes in and he opens his sack and all the horrible minions come out so they've kept the sack <laughs> <laughs> yeah um thinking then about the minions uh yeah i i just want to say i really enjoyed the uh, gingerbread men and i loved seeing how i get attacked by them um yeah top moment for me especially the fact that they're using like a nail gun so it feels like a commentary on like gun use so i yeah. did, did like that um I wanted to just just like pause a minute and I just noticed the film's relationship with guns is interesting to me a little bit potentially unsettling because of course you've got Howard who is the sort of character we would expect to you know uh be pro-gun but then he quickly converts Thomas as well mm. yeah <laughs> and very soon and Dorothy's taking up a gun and then so Sarah <laughs> this is yeah. a very there's a lot of gun wielding in this film. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if that was something that you'd picked up on or if you had any thoughts on. I, I think it's interesting because I think it's an interesting commentary. Like you say, at first he's very much like guns, Howard's like guns at, you know. And then even when, so like when uh, Tom's got a gun and then Dorothy and then, you know, when they're in Attic and she's like, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it, you know, <laughs> Sarah's screaming. But I think it's interesting in that respect that they all fall straight into the, the the sort of trap of, you know, the guns, I suppose. But what I think is interesting about it is that it makes no difference because it cannot save <laughs> yeah. them. So there's an interesting, I suppose, an interesting, um, like, dichotomy between guns are good because you can shoot intruders, but on other hand if intruders Krampus <laughs> it's don't futile. waste your ammo you know <laughs> no point but yeah and I, I and that with gingerbread men and nail gun I mean I love them gingerbread men so yeah. um but yeah so I think it's that there is this very it's very heavy sort of gun presence which obviously I, I don't think you would have if it had been made in UK for instance if it was set in UK but um it don't really matter because it, it's not going to save you <laughs> <laughs> so um let's talk about the ending then which is i know we're both very excited for <laughs> i'd completely forgotten like because it kind of does this wizard of oz thing where it's like max wakes up and i'm thinking oh has this all been a dream and everything seems a bit dreamy doesn't it um and everyone's sort of everything seems like quite perfect now and you know, it reminds me of those, like, you know, those moments in, like, 80s, 70s, 80s horror films, like Carrie and Friday the 13th, where it's, like, everything's happened, carnage, and it's, like, la, 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 and you're, like, ah, and then, like, bang, like, something just happens. Yeah. <laughs> it really reminds me of that, because Max is given a Krampus bell, uh, and the whole mood shifts there's almost like this collective realization or or recollection of something so explain to us then what happens at the end of the film and what your interpretation is and how it makes you feel um well when I watched it this time I had a different thought that I hadn't had before which is that I think when Beth when Beth goes out and streets are empty um, I think it's already too late then. I think they're already in Krampus land that is already um, when, you know, our houses are empty and streets are empty. And, and and I think that then it's already too late. So before you even have all, you know, chaos in the attic and, and the, the stuff in the house, it, they're already gone. Um, which I think is quite bleak, actually. <laughs> I was going to say, you've made a dark film even darker. <laughs> yeah I think they're already there and then it's just sort of a bit of a game he's playing um and I, and I do think that as an ending it's one of the most like 
I mean, it's absolute nihilism. There's like no, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no let up. And but then I, I suppose on the other hand, you can see it as a really awful ending. But again, thinking about Krampus as being like rather than a, a good or evil, it's like a moral and a punishment. Max got exactly mm-hmm. what he wanted which for Christmas, as he wanted all his family together, he just got it forever, living in the snow globe in Krampus's workshop. <laughs> so it's, again, it's like a comment on that idea that, you know, we all we all strive for that Christmas togetherness, that, you know, Christmas, oh, everybody says it, oh, I wish Christmas could last all year. And Max gets his wish, but it's, it's in a really dark, um, it's a very literal interpretation of what he asked for. Yeah, Which careful what you wish for. Like exactly, and most... I think that, yeah, <laughs> and I think that's a message all the way through. Which is, be careful with your intent, um, mm. you know, your intention and what you wish for, because Krampus is giving you what you've asked for, but very literally. There's no, you know, like you, you know, it's like the monkey's paw, you know, whatever. It's it's that sort of thing. It's like be be careful with your intentions. And but I do think when he gets up, like you think everything's fine, but then as he as he goes in the living room, you can see there's this like haze of you know like vast yeah. like, sort of <laughs> dreamy. It's like you know end of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street when everything's just yeah. like liquid, liquid lemon light and everybody's lovely in the fresh clean jammers and you know <laughs> everyone's happy and no one's scrapping. And then he opens that box and it's just that realization. And they all, and like you said, they all just look at each other and they all know. And that pullback that they're just yeah, oh. you know, it's so good as a, Superb. As a scene. Um, but yeah, I I think it's it, it's an interesting ending. Like it's you know because I don't think it's even like that the dead. I, I don't think it's like a oh they've been killed by Krampus. I just think they've been removed from reality from our reality and into Krampus's. Which, which is worse, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, which, which one's worse? Um, but yeah, I did think about it this time and I thought actually when, um, as soon as Blizzard started and lights went out, I, I think by then it, it were already done, like the deal were done and there were no no turning back, which again, if we think about like intention and we think about that idea about what you wish for, you know, that it's, it's interesting. We don't often get that. There's nearly always a get out clause yeah you know, there's a way to undo it there's a way that you can take it back yeah uh, and there's not many films I, I, I don't think I mean off the top of my head I know like sort of Drag Me To Hell does that uh, mm-hmm. which I've only seen once like years ago but I remember ending and thinking wow that's you know and and that idea about words having power and intention having power mm-hmm. and that you know you can't take back what you've what you've wished for I think it's it's ash <laughs> <laughs> very harsh <laughs> very harsh message for Christmas but it's really interesting I mean I do love ending I do think it's brilliant yeah and and so like what do you see as like the message of the film and do you think it's a film about like not we talked about intention and stuff but do you think in terms of like faith do you think it's a film that touches on not losing faith about what you believe in um, yeah yeah oh sorry yeah go on no no I was just gonna say like Maybe it's a, we've talked about innocence and experiences as well, haven't we? And maybe it's a bit about realizing that the world is not a simple and pure place like you think it is when you're a kid, and that actually there's complexities within the world, and you know things may feel like one way to you as a child, but once you sort of go past that point that we've spoken about of maybe coming to a realization of certain things don't exist that are told to us, and you know, adult relationships are very complex and not what they seem to you as a child. They wonder if there's some message there as well about like almost this falling away of like a veil and being like, mm. oh, it's like coming to see the world like as this place of, you know, light and dark as well. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think it is, it is that, it's that idea about balance and, you know, the, like, like I've said, I said, I don't see Krampus necessarily as an evil villain. I don't see him as a, a an evil sort of, you know, villain like you'd seen in other other sort of films like that. I think he's a very um, ambivalent sort of person. You yeah. know, you, you you've lost faith in Christmas. I am the 
I am the punishment to redress that balance, you know, and and they do have that period of togetherness when everything, you know, but I do, I mean, I do think it is absolutely so much about family and appreciating the time you have, mm-hmm. you know, the time that you have together and appreciating one another. But again, with that real context of people are sometimes really irritating and sometimes you wish you'd never have to see anybody ever again. But actually, when chips are down sort of thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think, I mean, ending it, you know, it's so sad. I, I did think when um, they've, they've finally sort of got, they've got to that truck and they're going to get away and then, the, the you know the weird snake thing under snow gets Sarah and she's just like oh I love you and then he yanks her and she's gone and it's so gut wrenching yeah you know you just think oh my god like this is so harsh this is so hard yeah um and as so a I horror suppose, fan though it's a bit as a horror fan it is also quite delightful isn't it to see oh I love it yeah the I opposite of what that. you expect <laughs> yeah and I love to see people go like that far like with yeah. things that they, that they don't always do the um that they don't always redress that balance into the positive that sometimes yes. it is we do stay in the darkness and I do think you stay in darkness in Krampus in a way that even though they're all together they're together and I mean at least it's at Christmas I suppose you know <laughs> at least they're stuck in Christmas forever but they're together forever now. That is it. And like Arlong's forever. You know, there's no like free, it just finishes. They're just still there on this shelf, you know. So I suppose I think its message is about faith in in your principles, you know, faith mm-hmm. in what you believe in and not not being led by other people. And also I do think it's quite anti-capitalist in that it's, you know, it's very much like this is not Christmas. Christmas is not, you know, going and having your portrait done and this massive table full of food that nobody wants to eat. You know, yeah. Christmas is fighting a horrible angel doll baby with razor sharp teeth off your wife. Like, that's Christmas. <laughs> Christmas. So get ready, everybody. Wow. Well, I expected this to be like a very frothy, fun chat. And we've actually got quite deep here. <laughs> Which is great, and it just—it's a testament to the film that there's all these things to just unpack, and there's more. These deep, we could go deeper, talk more. Um, but have you got any concluding thoughts, or was there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to to mention? Uh, no, just I think if you've not watched it, why not get it watched? Um, <laughs> get it watched. Uh, get it watched, <laughs> and uh, just that I would love to see more films about Krampus, more things about Krampus. Yes, that's what I would like. The true spirit of Christmas is Krampus. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, Megan, I'm sure people are keen to hear where they can find and follow you online. So if you want to share your socials and plug any up and coming projects. Yeah, um, I'm on um, Instagram at words.by.megk, I believe. I've just changed it. I've just set one up for my reviews. Um, and on Twitter at Megan R. Kenny, but who knows how long Twitter's going to be there. So, uh, you know, Um, and I'm doing some work with um, Monstrous Flesh with the wonderful Clelia McElroy. So we're going to be doing um, some work in New Year around setting a website up and doing some um, like events for people in horror and also maybe a podcast. So you're a lovely guest to have. Amazing. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, and yeah, just carry on writing for Ghouls Mag. So I've got, um, you know, I've got a link tree, Megan R. Kenny at Linktree, and that's got a link to all my writing and my reviews, and I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it. So yes, that's, I think, it for me, plug-wise. Good stuff, yeah. So everyone, make sure you check out Megan's Linktree and head over to her socials to keep up to date with which fingers are in which pies, basically. <laughs> uh <laughs> So um, for me, um, I just will do a quick plug for my series over at Moving Pictures Film Club on Hitchcock's women. So that's a series about the women of Hitchcock's films written from a female perspective. So if you fancy that, head on over to Moving Pictures Film Club. Um, Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of the Ghouls Gang podcast. 
my goodness, I can't get my words out. Uh, special thanks to my guest, Dr. Megan Kenny. Um, don't forget to visit girlsmagazine.com for all the latest articles, editorials, and reviews. And we now have all our previous episodes of the podcast available for your listening. So check us out. Um, wishing you all a very happy December, whatever your plans are. And thank you to everyone for all your support in 2022. Hopefully 2023 is going to be a good year for you, for us. And remember, hot chocolate makes everything better. <laughs> Take care, everybody. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle bells. Merry Christmas! Looks like Martha Stewart threw up in here. This is delicious, honey. A little dry. Well, mine's delicious. Mine's dry. You want to trade? It's, the it's Christmas. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. With those holiday greetings and greetings.